0: You might want uh, a copy of the hymnal in addition to the, the sheet because we're going to look at some other hymns also. So we've a sheep and a hymnal. surprisingly relative to other hymn writers.
1: We've got like a hundred,
0: well, a lot of stanzas and really good ones. So like, um, yeah, it's only like 135. Compared to the other hymn who've got hundreds and hundreds, you know, like, yeah. It is the quality, it's a quality. It, it, it is, but I mean, it, it's got but you know, like, so, like, you know, for him to have, I don't know, what, an our 20 hymns or something like that, uh, no one, I mean, Luther, is new given, they'll keep getting, because, you know, like, he's up there too.
1: Sorry. <laughs> um, but, yeah.
0: It's just a nice little introduction there, all right, so if you 've got the the sheet and the hymn uh, we 're looking at all Christians who have been baptized, which is not in our red hymnal, which is why you have the sheet, but we 'll talk about where it comes from um, we 're going to get into it first we 're going to talk about Paul Gerhardt, the the hymn writer, and then we 're going to talk about the little little music, not that much because it 's a borrowed tune, um, but then uh, spend time talking walking through the the text of the of this particular hymn, so we should I think be familiar with Paul Gerhardt, um, but if not, you will be uh, yeah, here i 'm going to go through kind of just his life outline uh, born in sixteen hundred seven uh Heinechen, so if you remember remember last. What was it? Last week when we were talking about Phil Nikolai? I can't remember what happened at that time. Was that when he was ordained or something like that? It was right at the beginning of the Thirty Years' War. So that's just something that we want to, with this history, frame that. That's a big event um, in, in this history. So that starts in 1618. So he's born right before that, but that's coming. That's going to be during his life. Maybe it, wasn't, maybe it wasn't Philip Nicolai. Who'd we... I don't know. It was someone... What other hymn writer did we have that was like... He was like... Yeah, nobody's heard. He was a guy who had a really... Yeah, know, Tobias... Tobias Klausnitzer. Tobias. Yeah, that's right. Where he was like born the year before it started or something, something like that. That. Uh, uh, th- that name, while long, um, it could be... That's the, the town in, that he's born in... Um, and until he's fifteen, that's where he goes to school first. Um, I think it's when he's fifteen that he goes to school in Grimma. It's uh, it was called the Prince Prince School, uh, is the the Prince's Academy um, in Grimma. That was the, so the early years would have been his like um, like grammar school up until age fifteen, and this was the, the gymnasium. Uh, but a very good school, and actually, the reason that he go part of the reason that he goes there is because he's an orphan. By the time he's fifteen, both of his parents have died, um, and so he goes kind of on a scholarship from the town that he's that they're living in, and they send him to this to the school to, to study. From there, he goes to Wittenberg, um, and those are the years that he's in Wittenberg. He's only a student there at the beginning. He's a student, but if you remember, Thirty Years' War goes until from. 1618 to 1648 so he graduates, but he's not going anywhere well that there's a war on he doesn't get a position until the war ends pretty much until 1649 uh, but he's there until 1642 uh, yeah, he's a university student there um, in, another reason why he stays there so instead of so he's, if he's done with school, I don't know the exact years that he's you know when he get graduates or gets his um, uh, degrees. But 1637, uh, after he's been there nine years, um, still during the Thirty Years' War, the town, uh, Grafenheineken, is completely destroyed. The, the, his, his family's home, uh, his, the, the church, the, the whole town is destroyed by the Swedish troops. Uh, so who was it? that we, Was it Klausnitzer last week? That was a he was like a chaplain to the Swedish troops in Leipzig. Uh, here, uh, and I, I don't understand all the dynamics of the Thirty Years' War. This the, the, uh, Sweden gets involved and they're fighting against the Holy Roman Empire. You'd think that the Swedish troops, which are fighting kind of on the Protestant side, if it's a religious war, because the the Holy Roman Empire, Charles V is. This Roman Catholic leader and they're fighting but they, they still d- destroy these towns it's totally plundered um, uh, I'll show you a picture of the church there and you can see how they had to build rebuild like the church is rebuilt now but you can see different levels of stone in it uh, during this time plague goes through too uh, and he serves as a tutor um interestingly, he's going to eventually marry the youngest daughter of the family that he tutors. Later on, he's going to marry her. Um, but the, the family that uh, is a bank? No, a lawyer, I think. A lawyer in, in Wittenberg that he tutors uh, there in Wittenberg. Uh, and Then he goes to Berlin. And in the Berlin area, really. Uh, and this is where he picks up him writing. He, he uh, associates with Johann Krieger you'll see that a lot of Paul Gerhard hymns you'll see him with the text and you'll see Johann Krieger uh, with, uh, listed as the tune so he was the cantor in, at the church, Nikolai Kirche in Berlin uh, the musician uh, for the, the church and he's writing tunes and, it, and uh, Gerhard gives, shows his, his poems to Krieger he likes them and they work together. And so that this first um, collection of Krieger's, it's a, it, Krieger's putting this thing together. He gets the poetry from Gerhard, and he puts this collection. That's the first one, 1647, has 18 hymns. A number of them you would recognize. I don't know them offhand which ones are in that. But a number of them, like, Oh uh, Lord, How Shall I Meet You for Advent, um, was one that I remember off the top of my head. 18 of them, though, that are in that first collection. But then... Um, Get worked up. Uh, by 1653, later on, there are 64 new ones in the 60, 1653 edition. Uh, this, this, this volume, it gets the same name, but it goes through multiple editions, I think. That I'll show you a title page uh, on another slide, and I think it's over 30 by the time that one was published, like, editions of this, of Krieger's so if you talk about a collection, this one of these would probably be the closest thing to a collection of Paul Gerhardt hymns. It wasn't only Gerhardt hymns though, I don't think. Uh, but that's really where where this takes off once he goes to to Berlin. Uh, he's finally ordained in sixteen fifty one when he finally gets a, a, a position as pastor, uh, the first a uh, place that he serves is in the Berlin area of Mittenwalde. Uh, this is where he also gets married, I believe. Uh, oh, yes, uh, he's married by this time. Uh, then, and only a short amount of time, because then he gets the position back in Berlin at the Nikolai Kirche, the big church there, and he's the, he's almost listed as the deacon, or he's like the third assistant, he's, he's ranked number three in pastors for this church. When you see the picture of the church, you'll understand. Um, that starts in 1657. Uh, he loses that position in uh, 1666, 67, to 66. He's first deposed, but then the citizens of Berlin petitioned to have him reinstated, and he was for a while. But then he, you we'll talk about why that was uh, a little bit later. It's there that a year later, after that. So think of this. He's You know 60 years old and now he's got no he's he's out of a job and and then a year later or so uh his wife and and four children died when he was in all they had his wife he and his wife had lost a a child their their oldest their firstborn Um, but four of them there's one left a a son i think a 12 i think it's 12 year old son is a paul Think so. Um, uh, was was all that was still living, but with no
1: no job. He does
0: eventually get when um, in 1669 the pastor I think died in Tunkelhuben, and uh, so he does serve out there not very long though um, there as pastor until he dies. Okay. Um, a couple pictures. So, this is in uh, Heineken. This is the church. And they, uh, it's hard to see with the shadows. But you see the different kind of stone. You got the, the new stuff. But then down here. So, my guess is one of these textures was, you know, when it was destroyed in 1637. Then they rebuilt it. And, you know, uh, not a small church. This is the school that, that he attended in Grima. On the river, and I think that's a modern. Yeah, there's a, a vehicle there, so that's a modern picture still there. Uh, the Prince's, Prince's Academy there. Uh, the title page, yeah. So in this one of Johann Krieger, so you got Johann Krieger, and that's Krieger there. Um, but uh, 1721 by 1721 edition, 39. <laughs> So they, they were a lot of these things were were published and sold. So I mentioned in when they were in um, the, the, a the child that died. So this is on the wall in that church still to this day. It's a plaque, or a, it's like a book. It looks like it's about this big, um, and it has so uh, Maria Elizabeth, that was the little girl's name, uh, Paul Gerhardt's. Uh, Paul Gerhard of uh, uh, Paul Gerhard at that time the provost in Mittenwalde and Anna Maria Berthel, that's his that's his wife uh, first born daughter little daughter welcomed I don't know what all the words are but that's welcome uh, in May of 1656 and again opgeschieden um, they, they received her and then they lost her, or she just separated, uh, in January of 1657, so about a, what, seven-month-old. Seven month um, here, um here, her, her little um, bed rest, uh, and this, I'm guessing this, like, plaque to her memory, by her dear parents, um, and then it, 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 Genesis forty-seven verse nine, uh, few and evil are the at the, the time of my life. That's from that's from Genesis um, when Jacob meets Pharaoh. Remember uh, Joseph is down there, and they brings the family down, and J- Jacob finally meets Pharaoh, and uh, Pharaoh asks. Uh, or if Jacob said to Pharaoh, Pharaoh asked, How old are you? Jacob said to Pharaoh, The years of my pilgrimage are 130. My years have been few and difficult. And so that's what they put on that. It's kind of neat. Um, I think it's also neat that it's still there, you know, of all the. You know. um, so this is the Nikolai Kirche in Berlin uh, today, or in modern picture, you see the buildings. See the, from this angle, at least, it looks like. It looks like the steeple still. They, and they, that could be. It's possible that in a city like that, they have uh, some kind of ordinance that says you can't build it taller than the. You don't see that. You know, go to like a, a. I don't know if it's this. If you see anything like that in Minneapolis, I don't recall that. But Milwaukee, it's noticeable when you drive through downtown Milwaukee and all these super tall steeples, but the the buildings dwarf them. But they were I mean, just. It, you know, w- when those things were new, I'm sure they towered over anything else. Um, you, especially when you're driving, like in, in Milwaukee, and you're driving up on an uh, elevated freeway, you know, and then you're driving by, and like there's a steeple, <laughs> right there, but it's actually much, much taller. Ah, the inside of that church. And then uh, this is uh, Gerhardt's grave, where he's. There's a marker there. All right. Um, let's talk about the, the tune for this hymn, All Christians Who Have Been Baptized. Maybe just so that we get it into our head. And the first stanza is the one we're going to... We should know that the tune, it's the tune to Dear Christians, One and All Rejoice. But let's just sing the first stanza um,
1: before we start. Ready? Dear Christians, all Christians,
0: This tune uh, is, is usually attributed to Luther. I don't think it, it doesn't say, that doesn't list it in the, in the hymnal as for sure Lutheran, Luther, but it's from the 1524 hymnal. We don't have any other author. We don't have it associated um, to, to Luther when Luther uses it for Dear Course, is One and All Rejoice. So we assume that Luther wrote this tune, but it was in that original Lutheran hymnal in 1524, that the tune. Uh, In that hymnal also, you have the other hymn uh, that is, uh, uh, that's like it, uh, is Salvation Unto Us Has Come. They both use the same meter. So meter, I think we've talked about that. You might know this, um, that those numbers at the bottom of the page, if you want to. uh, So take the hymnal and let's say open it up to hymn. Well, first, let's start with 377, which has this two Okay, so bottom, right side, right page, bottom of the page, you see the tune name, Nun Freut euch Lieben Christen, which is Dear Christians, One and All Rejoice. And then underneath that, you have the numbers 8787887. Eight, seven, eight, eight, seven. Um, the numbers is the meter, and that indicates how many syllables per line. Okay, so you have eight syllables Dear Christians, One and All Rejoice. With exaltation, spring, or all Christians who have been baptized, eight who know the God of heaven, seven, right, and then it repeats those two lines again, and then the next one is eight, eight, seven, right? Makes sense. Which then, that's how you could, if you were to sing a, you, you could only sing a hymn to a tune if it has the same meter, right? It has the same number of syllables. Um, an interesting thing about this one is that you have, um, you have that many syllables, but you don't have that many notes. In each of the seven syllable lines, they both end with an extra note. Uh, so you have dear, um, all Christians who have been baptized to know the God of heaven. You've got two notes on the second to the last syllable. So actually, each line has eight notes. Um, even though you have seven, all the seven-syllable lines all have that. So the the one does um, heaven, but then you also have given, and then the last phrase, last line, um, baptized into Christ Jesus. Okay, so um, so then. Um, maybe it's up to you how you want to do it. If you want to stick a finger in 377 to look back at it if you want to. but Or you could just turn to 390, which is Salvation Unto Us Has Come. I believe that in the original, when, when this hymn was first published, 1667, this one did not come early. Um, in that early time frame in Gerhardt's life, uh, it was actually later talk about that. Uh, When it was published, though, it was published not with Dear Christians, One and All tune. It was published with Salvation Unto Us Has Come tune. So so this is what we have it. in. It was published in the supplement. It was published in uh, Lutheran Service Book, the Missouri Synod hymnal. But (laughs) this hymn wasn't translated until 2004 into English. Okay, so but when it was in German, it was actually Set to this too in the earlier, earlier Wells hymnals uh, that were used. This, hymnal, this hymn was in there. It was always in the, in the German hymnals. It wasn't until we went to English that we lost it for, you know, almost 100 years. Less than 100 years, but it was gone from us until it got translated in English for us. But, es ist das Heil. Salvation unto us has come by God's free grace and favor. So that's what they sang this hymn to. Originally, when it was originally published, and then in you know American Lutheran hymnals that were in German. So whenever in German, I think it generally stuck with that tune. But the interesting thing is they're, they're well one they have the same meter. They have to if you can sing it too. Um, but those two tunes, I don't know if you've ever noticed that. Sometimes we'll get them mixed up. They're very similar. In like so that thing where it does the um, the seven. Syllable lines having the ending da da da. Both tunes do that. They both kind of like start with an eighth note and then go to quarter notes.
1: Pom pom
0: So they're just super similar. Uh, that's kind of about. I'll, I'll admit, Point you to is just the fact that they're very similar, the, and the hymns. So if you look at the hymns themselves, the, like those other hymns that ones by Paul Sprat, as all salvation unto us has come, dear Christians, one and all rejoice. Um, can we look at those and just say what? What are those hymns about? In general, what would you say? You could use a, a, a good hint. Would be the the title on the, the header on the top of the page. So, um, which one? Dear Christians, One and All Rejoice. What's that hymn about? Oh,
1: justification.
0: Yeah, justification is a good one. <laughs> it's... <laughs> you ready? Right. It's a... Uh, um, Dear Christians, One and All Rejoices. I mean, it's, that one's in ten stanzas. Um, it's kind of the story of salvation. Proclaiming the wonders God has done. How he, You know, it's, it's telling the whole story. Of how God saves us, right? Um, Salvation unto us has come. What's that one about? Justification. It's the overarching teaching of the scriptures, how we're saved, right? And both of those hymns published at the, in the same book originally, with very similar tunes. One's by Paul Sparatus, one's by Luther... Uh, but those tunes are. I think they're also they may be based on the same original. You know, there's another tune somewhere else from the 15th century that they may also be based on. It's a Easter processional. Uh, very similar. Okay. My question for you, for you to think about, is why would 100 I'm trying to do math in my head. 140 years later. Um, Paul Gerhardt writes a he writes a, a a poem, but he writes it in this meter. Okay, so he's my hunch is that he doesn't have a, a tune in mind. Some of a lot of a lot of um, uh, Gerhardt's hymns he hands over to Johann Krieger, but um, the the hymn writer Gerhardt's putting it into the meter, right? So he's gotta have some reason or rhyme for what meter he's gonna put it in, you know? How many syllables is he gonna put in each line? He's doing that stuff on purpose, right? So at least with this one, he puts it in the same meter as these hymns, which he undoubtedly knew. Um, and I mean, he could hand it over to Krieger and say, do you got anything on that one? But my guess is the fact that he wrote, he wrote it in this meter. Think he might have intended it to be sung with one of these two melodies. Do you think that maybe he did that on purpose? That he purposefully wanted this text to be associated in some way with these other texts? Here's my suggestion, is what is baptism? So our hymn before us is a hymn about baptism. Um, What were the other two hymns about? Justification. It's everything. It's the whole Christian faith, right? How God saves us. Might Paul Gerhardt be teaching us something about the importance of baptism by using the same meter for the same tune as a hymn, such as one of these astounding, big, really important hymns, and saying, see, baptism is just as important. Baptism is a part of our justification. Yeah? These aren't so. Baptism is not like one of these little. As long as we're tempted to think that, you've got, well, like for example, um, I've heard this before. You know, what's the difference between us and, say, the Baptists or something like that? And they're like, well, we're pretty much the same, except that we teach something different about the sacraments. As if that's a small thing, <laughs> right? That's. It. And 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 this is gonna this is gonna be very obvious in the circumstances of of Paul Gerhardt's life, um, which we'll be talking about in a little bit. Okay? So using an existing a, a meter that is associated with very familiar centerpiece Lutheran hymns. I mean these are these are like um, these two dear Christians one Albert Joyce and Salvation of the Lost Come are kind of like the There are arch-Lutheran hymns. You know, these are like the epitome of what, you know, like this is kind of the standard that Luther and to set for hymn writing. And, and Gerhardt's saying like, well, let's sing this text too in this. And, and baptism is just as worthy to sing about with such a, te- a tune uh, as uh, Justification. Uh, Okay, so, with that in mind, uh, we want to talk about Gerhardt and Calvinism um, in in his life and before his life. So, you're familiar with Calvinism? So, John Calvin, and it's not entirely like Calvinism equals exactly just um, like what Calvin taught during his lifetime, but it it evolves, I guess. In, In a nutshell, what would you say? Um, Calvinism is a is a is a reform movement that goes further than than the Reformation, um, mainly because of an overemphasis on human reason. And Calvin would say, um, it, particularly in areas such as baptism and especially in the Lord's Supper, that it doesn't fit my reason, and there it can't be. Um, and so. And and so we just cannot accept the the actual act of what baptism does as efficacious or that the Lord's Supper is, in fact, the true body and blood of Jesus. Uh, And and some, many, would be tempted to think that's not that big of a deal. Um, What we're going to see is that at least these Lutherans thought it was a pretty big deal, right? (laughs) So what you have, and sorry, this is small. There's a lot of stuff on here. So... Um, remember Luther dies in 1546. Already shortly after he, he's gone, we have what, what gets called crypto-Calvinism. So crypto means meaning hidden. So you've got Lutherans, or those who present themselves as Lutheran, but upon investigation, you find out that they're actually closet Calvinists and that they're pushing for, for more Calvinist doctrine than Lutheran doctrine, and they want want this to be welcome. And then it eventually becomes more open Calvinism reformed and and eventually they want to just do away with the difference altogether. But initially it's it's reformers who are who want to be part of the Reformation. They want to be part of the Lutheran thing. Also because it was illegal to be anything but Lutheran or Catholic. Like the Calvinists didn't get um they, they weren't allowed to be part of the, the, the Lutheran protections that, that had been uh, part of uh, signed peace agreements and things like that, where they would let Lutheran territories, if the prince was Lutheran, they just let it be. But Calvinism, didn't, that didn't qualify for that. Um, so you had that going on. Um, but then some of those, were they, what they would do is they would they'd be Calvinists, and they would try to get a Calvinist into a position, say, in a university, and start teaching, and then start training pastors in this too. Um, so 1546, Luther dies. Um, you've got this controversy then that's going on, and that leads up to the formula of Concord. So as a, as a way of dealing with this, they write the formula of Concord. At least one of the articles, um, but I would say several actually, are really directed towards identifying what is the true Lutheran faith based on the Augsburg Confession. Um, the article, for, for instance, on the Lord's Supper. Um, they're now writing it to say, no, you can't be sort of half and half here. This is what Lutherans believe about the Lord's Supper. Um, and then they go around and they try and get people to sign it. Um, and then that becomes part of, then that's the collection of the Book of Concord um, that we now refer to as our Lutheran Confessions. So this is the last part of that. That, in, in Saxony, where where Gerhardt is, uh, which is also where Wittenberg is and all these places, uh, Elector August is in charge while that's going on. So they're, They're dealing with it. They write the formula of Concord, contain that in the Book of Concord. He's a Lutheran. His successor, Christian I, is a Calvinist. And so he, while he's the elector, then he tries to shift things, tries to get, you know, Calvinists into the University of Wittenberg. Fortunately, he doesn't stay in charge that long. He's only, um, from 1586, it's only five years. He dies there's a guy, I forget what his name is, who's his chancellor, who's kind of behind, that, uh, behind him. And uh, after Christian the first, dies the next year, um, that chancellor got beheaded because he, he was pushing Calvinism. But then they swung back the other way. Um, under, during this time, though, uh, Grandpa Starkey, Grandpa Casper Starkey, so this is Paul Gerhardt's grandfather, um, was a Lutheran pastor. Um, And one of the things that the Calvinists object to in baptism is the part, the historical part of the baptismal rite called the exorcism. Um, You hear that, so we still use here, we use Luther's baptismal rite, which includes that, um, which is, depart you unclean spirit and make room for the Holy Spirit. The Calvinists said, they they were up and up, they said, you can't, um, for various reasons, one um, they objected to the the idea of a child being a possessed enemy of God <laughs> um, so they they have a softened view of original sin, and so they didn't they didn 't like that language also because it kind of assumes that with baptism comes the actual power of God to do something um, and so they forbid they they were trying to Excise the exorcism from the baptismal rite, and uh, Gerhardt, Paul Gerhardt's grandfather, uh, Grandpa Starkey, says no, he says no, doing it. He was deposed from his, he he was kicked out, fired, whatever. Also, the pastor in his hometown, in Heineken, in 1591. So, this is before this is before. Gerhard 's born both of these things happen um, but that 's part of the world that he grows up in so when he 's born um, years later this is this is part of his heritage right of of lutheran Lutheran pastors you know hometown pastor, grandpa pastor, who took a stand and said no we're th- th- no that 's giving in if I were to not do the exorcism? I would be giving in on doctrine. They um, believe. So this is during a time when, yeah, when the, these orders are coming down to try to make the church, make the Lutheran Church more Reformed. Okay. Um, the the following leader, uh, the Elector of Saxony, Christian the second, is a Lutheran. Um, so this is, and I don't, I don't remember the dates right now. I don't, when this is, but generally, what happens is the time when Gerhard is going to school is when there's a Lutheran, he gets to go to schools that are solidly Lutheran. So when he's at the, the gymnasium in Grima, um, the, the teachers there are solidly against crypto Calvinism um, and for a solid Lutheranism. And at the time that he goes there, the University of Wittenberg is solidly orthodox or confessional um there that this is in the time so there these people their professors are have have sworn to uphold the lutheran confessions in their entirety um but then uh then it switches back that his successor uh elector Friedrich wilhelm Friedrich wilhelm or frederick william um uh, he is a solid calvinist and he then while um while Paul Gerhard now is a pastor, in 1560, 56 he prohibits subscription to the formula of Concord. So said this is not part of now. New pastors coming in are not allowed to subscribe. They would it allows them to subscribe to the Augsburg Confession and maybe this small calvary is maybe the Augsburg Confession, because it's the formula of Concord that rejects Calvinism. And so they exclude that from that because they don't, they don't want to say anything. Well, he's a Calvinist, of course. <laughs> and the Formula of Concord says that Calvinism is wrong. Um, and then, um, I saw different dates for this. 1662, 1664, sometime in there. But anyway, Gerhard is pastor in Berlin during this time. And the, is what they call the Edict of Toleration. This is what this is called. The, the, the decree that prohibits preaching against Calvinism. Do you see, do you see what it's doing? It's, you know, saying we're going to tolerate, we're going to be tolerant of other religions, meaning you can't say they're wrong. That's tolerance. It's kind of, I mean, this is no different than today, is it? Other ideas, they want you to being inclusive, being inclusive means you can't say anything is different, is different from another. So not even now it's not even that you can't say some things are wrong. You can't say that anything is different. You know, you can't make any distinction between men and women, for example. Just to be able to say that those are two different, distinct things is a heresy that is not allowed. You cannot speak that. Um, what they were not allowed to speak was that Lutherans were different than Calvinists. More specifically, that because what the Lutherans were confessing was that, that Calvinism is wrong. That teaching, that doctrine, is against the scriptures. Um, but the, the decree is, you can't preach that. Um, and so Gerhardt, Paul Gerhardt, says, no, I can't. Um, You know, initially when they did this, the way that the pastors, so this kind of was sort of, wasn't retroactive. Like, these pastors had subscribed to the Formula of Concord. They had sworn allegiance to these teachings, just like we do to this day, right? Um, Pastors do. Uh, They had subscribed to this. And so when they, when it comes out with this, you know what they do? They respond by preaching all the more sternly, you know, like saying, okay, but I guess we have to preach more. Um, well, that didn't go. That's not the way the elector wanted it to go. And so then it comes out with this. Um, and Gerhard, Paul Gerhard, was the um, kind of the spokesman of several groups of, of clergy. And so he was one who's writing stuff to the elector and specifically saying, no, we're, we will not. Uh, they had at one point asked them to sign something stating that they would agree to this and They just... So it wasn't just like, we're going to tell you not to do this, but are they going to come after you if you do? No, you actually had to sign something saying that you weren't going to do it. Um, You know, the the things like that today, you know, kind of like speech codes or, or like things that not just whether that you're allowed or not allowed to say something, but where they will require you to agree, now think of like, um, I don't know how this is going to go, but like teachers in the state of Minnesota, who are now, um, you know, part of the state standards, will uh, for new teachers, you know, is you know certain. I don't know how, how many of them and how explicit they all are, but whether woke ideologies or, um, you know, transgender, like those are part of the the standards for new teachers. So um, somehow the the. I don't. I don't know how the process goes, but the idea would be that they would need to demonstrate that they agree to these principles. If you want a teaching license, um, that puts uh, like a school like MLC or uh, Bethany in Mankato too, that uh, training teachers to teach in Minnesota schools with a Minnesota teaching license. How how does this go? You know, and we we can't say something, sign our name to something that we that is not. Um, so, with that, with that context now, look at this hymn. It's the only hymn that, um, that Gerhardt has, uh, the only baptism hymn that Paul Gerhardt wrote. Um, interestingly, though, in the collection where this was published, the very next hymn was a communion hymn, the only, I think the only communion hymn that Paul Gerhard had. But, um, and it wasn't in one of his early hymns, it was a, a, a later hymn. Uh, it was six what is I think i have it up here somewhere sixteen sixty seven so that other stuff is going on he 's deposed in sixteen sixty eight right that 's when this stuff is going on so that's that 's what he 's got on his mind when he 's writing this. Uh, this is a time when this all this baptism thing the lord 's Supper is being you know the openly challenged, and they 're being kind of forbidden, so to preach like this would be in some ways, like he maybe couldn't preach this, but he can He'll write it in him, and it'll last longer. At least in German, um, originally I originally had t- twelve stanzas, um, but the ones that we have six because those were have been translated for us. I've got the German ones in front of you. I could read those for you, sing those to you, but um, although, so this would be a good um, a good. There's a there's a memorial. Um, for Synod Convention this summer, uh, for the Synod to commission a translation of this German hymnal, the German hymnal that I think there's copies in the back in that case there. There's a couple of these, th- these Wells hymnals from you know, the early part of the last century um, in German. So this would be an example of a hymn. Um, you don't have access to any of those other stanzas. They're in German. I, I, I think there's probably some place that you could find them somewhere in English, but I don't know of any other hymnal that has those other standards. So, um, so I'm on the committee that's actually has has that memorial um, to to present to, and so we were discussing that, and I kind of thinking through like, is this worth the synod's time to publish a. A translation of an old hymnal. It's not a new hymnal. It's just translating. Well, one reason to do it, I think one good reason to do it, would be stanzas like these. That otherwise, you know, unless you know German, these are these are entirely lost to you. You know, we're not, they're not going to get put into a new hymnal, probably, to actually be sung in congregations. But so that you'd have access to it. And I thought, I think... I think I might have gotten some from your family i 've gotten some from other p- families where they 've had old hymnals in german i don 't know if some of the stuff like is in a trunk or something like that you know, where where people get find these things like i don 't know what to do with this um, and I get them <laughs> and like, it would be kind of neat to have a a, a, a translation of that I just said to you know i could say okay that, that hymnal that you have that or that you know, so you found up in the attic or something like that that was don't, you're not going to be able to read in German, but here there's a published translation of this, like where the, the hymn numbers match, and it has all the stanzas. And that could be because those hymnals had prayers and other stuff in it. And just reading through the the hymn, even if you're not going to, you know, maybe sing it, but reading through all the stanzas could be really neat devotionally. So, so, something to think about. Maybe I might. <laughs> good enough. <laughs> um, yeah, so this didn't get translated until, I think 2004, that's the copyright date that our supplement has at the bottom of the page. Sometime some in there, it would have been included then in the Missouri, so he's a Missouri Synod. Um, I think some position uh, in the like, commission on worship or something like that, I'm not sure if he's a professor or not, I don't know, but um, John Beaker, it would have been included in their 2006 Lutheran service book hymnal. Um, and then it is also included. It was in our supplement, and that's how we kind of had access to it. And then the new hymnal has it in it as well. Um, but that's an interesting thing. It's one of those hymns that and there, are, there are more like it. I don't know that they're all of this quality. This one is a really good one, and this is the one where we're like, this one should have been translated. You know, like, you know, Catherine Winkworth, who is responsible for a lot of the translations that we have of Lutheran hymns into English, um, at least early ones, this is one she didn't do. You know, possibly because she wasn't Lutheran. And occasionally, sometimes people will catch things in Catherine Winkworth's translations where they kind of suspect that she has kind of a bias um, in the translation and doesn't... Sometimes people will pick up on that. I don't usually notice. Usually they're pretty good, but um, but she, she wasn't a Lutheran, and uh, and and it's possible that that has, you know, like this wasn't high on her priority this Perhaps I don't know. Um, it just wasn't at the top of her. Pocket. It's I
1: mean. It's possible. What?
0: Yeah, I don't know. It, but
1: nobody it, else did it in
0: between there either. So. Yeah. No. It, it, yeah. Until then, it's, and, and, but it's still a question of like, you know, I don't know. I don't know what was motivating. Catherine, but, um, but no one else got to it either um, until now. But we're grateful that we have it you now, and that's, that's, uh, that's a blessing. So let, let's, uh, we got some time. We're going to go through the text. What I want you to watch for as we go through the, the text of this hymn: three emphases, and I think all three of these things are things that Calvinists would deny. Uh, particularly the first two. One would be the need for baptism, that this is a necessary thing. Um, and they deny the, what we would say is the need for it. The, uh, back up. the efficacy of baptism, that it actually does something, and then uh, the use of baptism. So uh, efficacy, that it, what it does, and that it actually does something. Again, Calvinism, would Calvinists would often deny that. And then the use of baptism that this is more than just something that happened once upon a time. There's there's a a present use. There's something that happens now, even though baptism is something that happened once in the past, there's still something that happens because of baptism continually. So let's look at that, and we want to kind of pay attention and watch for that as we go through it, okay? All Christians who have... let's, Let's read it together, at least. Stanza one first. Ready? All Christians who have been baptized... Who know the God of heaven, and in whose daily life is prized the name of Christ once given. Consider now what God has done, the gifts he gives to everyone, baptized into Christ Jesus. Um, So, if you're looking for at the beginning, you'll notice generally our hymns are sentences. You know, there are complete thoughts, they're not just a bunch of phrases, like some more modern hymns are just like, they're sentence fragments, and they're, But what's going on here? When I first was looking, it's like, "Where's the, where's the verb?" Um, all Christians, or you know, like, what's the main verb? What, all Christians who have been baptized, who know the God of heaven, and who in whose life life has prized the name of Christ, once given. But you notice what's going on in this first part of the sentence. Addressing. It's addressing, yeah. It's a vocative, which is a, it's a form of address. So it's it's saying something to whom. To all Christians who have been baptized. And then all the who, uh, and in whose, um, that's describing all Christians who have been baptized. So, Christians who have been baptized, what do they do? They know the God of heaven, and, and in their daily life is prized the name of Christ once given. So we're going to notice one thing first right away, is in whose daily life is prized. Um, baptism gives you something to prize every day. Right in 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 regular life, what is what is the prize? The name of Christ bestowed upon you. It's a gift that um, just keeps on giving. It's a it's a present reality, right? So you who have been baptized, all of you, all Christians, and then um, you know the name of Christ. That is something that is actually given in baptism. So that so the daily life that would be that third point: the use of baptism. You could make the case that the name of Christ once given is part of the advocacy. You're given the name of God. That God, um, like, you know, going back to number six, the, the, the benediction, the Lord bless you. Um, what did God say about that when he told Aaron and the priest to, to bless the people, the Lord bless you, and keep you, the Lord make his face shine on you? He says, so you will put my name on them. It's God putting his name on us, uh, sealing us with that So um, that's who he's talking about then, but what's the what what are we to do? Consider now what God has done. Which is kind of like what Luther does in Dear Christians One and All Rejoice. Uh, Dear Christians One and All Rejoice. Uh, proclaim the wonders God has done. Um, or in Luther's Christmas hymn, too, like um, From heaven above to earth I come. It, 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 to announce the, the good news that God has given is this proclamation. Consider what God has done. So notice there too. What is true in baptism? Who does the work in baptism? Consider now what God has done. When, we talk, when we're considering baptism, we don't consider what we've done. That's one of the reasons why the Reformed reject something like infinite baptism, because they, don't, so they say that the baby can't do that. Well, what do you think they doing? Who's doing the work? See, they think that baptism is something that a person does. But we say, no, God's doing something with baptism. Baby's not doing anything. That's kind of the point of it, right? And actually, that's why baptizing babies kind of works out well in teaching something. It's teaching us, which is true, even if it's an adult, right? God's doing the work. Consider now what God has done. What does he have? The gifts he gives. So in his doing, he's giving. So there's another... Part of the efficacy of what God has done and the gifts he gives that 's all I want a good, very good new hymn that um, we occasionally use the gifts Christ freely gives' it's gifts to be given um, and who does he give these gifts to? Everyone, but everyone baptized into Christ Jesus. One of the things that Calvinists um, Reject, or one of the things that they teach is what's sometimes called a limited atonement. Um, The idea being that really Christ died on the cross, that he wouldn't waste his blood on on unbelievers, and so he really only dies for the believers. It's called a limited atonement. Atonement's limited to the elect. Um, Now, this really is specifically talking about the baptized, but it's everyone baptized. So there's, it's not so much, it's not a matter of, well, there's only some people, and there might be some people who, we recognize that there are some people who could be baptized and then fall away. Um, but the, so the Calvinists wouldn't, wouldn't ever say something like this, because they'd want to limit that, and, and say, well you can't say everyone baptized he's given gifts to uh, because then he's you know, because the idea would be that God sort of would give these gifts sort of like not being sincere like he's not going to actually save them he doesn't intend to save everyone um, so they it's not something that a Calvinist could, could confess alright, stanza two should we read that one? You were before your day of birth, indeed from your conception, condemned and lost with all the earth, none good without exception, for like your parents, flesh and blood, turned inward from the highest good, you constantly denied him. Um, yeah. So, which which of the three would this stanza be most hitting hardest? This one. Need right, um, and also again, this would be things that the Calvinists would reject. Um, that before your day of birth, indeed, from your conception, you know, the original sin in its in its totality. Um, well, I shouldn't say that Calvinists do believe in a total. Uh, what they, they they have the tulip is to, total depravity, but that you would that you would put that on children um, and. And even if, like strict Calvinists, if they if they hold to that, um, other Reformed would total, would just they just re- reject that outright. Um, so, but but you know the question. Is, so if you're totally depraved and God doesn't save through baptism, the only conclusion would be that you're just you're just lost. That you know children are are lost then, and they wouldn't rationally conclude that. And so. Uh, so, before your day of birth, before you, indeed, from your conception. I wonder how the German reads on that. Yeah, I suppose the, the, the English is stronger than than the German here, because I think it says, you were even before you were born, and before you, I don't know what gezogen is, but milch. <laughs> so, I'm... I, before you sucked milk, <laughs> that's so. I think is um, before you're born. So um, the, the English before your, from your conception, um, but damned förstossen uh, is another word for lost and or and lost uh, from your parents' flesh and blood. So this that this the total depravity comes from is inherited none good without exception that, that picks up on uh, Paul writing in Romans 2 um, quoting the Psalms like your parents flesh and blood turned inward from the highest good um, inclined towards evil which, which is what establishes why do we baptize babies because bab- babies need it uh, how do we know that ba- babies are sinful because babies die and the wages of sin is death um and and so I mean even that last that last phrase you know that to say you constantly denied him that sounds like an active thing and for someone who might say well babies can't do that they don't they don't reject him but is that what that is their inclination that is our natural inclination okay stanza three should we read it but all of that was washed away immersed and drowned forever the water of your baptism day, restored again, whatever, old Adam and his sin destroyed, and all our sinful selves employed, according to our nature. Okay, so this stanza would most mainly be efficacy, right? This is what it has done, okay? So what actually happened in baptism then? All of that was washed away, all of what? All of your sinful... Which includes what? You know, so Sansa 2 was talking about um, your sinful... Your, your, your sinful by nature, as well as your actions, right? All of that. Original sin and actual sin. Um, even your inclination to sin, your sinful nature, your sinful desires, that don't actually go away, that's washed away too. So even, even the sins, what about the sins that we still do but don't want to do and that we continue to do because we're sinful? Like, that's washed away too. So it's not a matter of you get forgiven only if you can cut it out and if you can start being a good boy or a good girl. Um, that <laughs> washes away all sin. Um, Immersed and drowned forever, which is ba- baptismal uh, flood language, right? This this picture of the of the being washed away like in a flood, but you know, sunk under the water to drown and die. Um, Luther uses that language in the uh, in the Catechism, right? Um, that we would daily by daily contrition and repentance that our sinful nature would be drowned and die with all evil deeds and evil desires. Um, the water of your baptism day restored again whatever your old Adam and his sin destroyed. Whatever, whatever your sin killed and, and, and mangled, the water of baptism restores it. So there are, there are things um, that your sin does that forgiveness doesn't seem to solve. You know, if you hurt someone, you hurt a relationship that can't be destroyed or, you know, or, (laughs) I mean, there's something like, you know, if you, you know, I I don't know if I, if I, if I cut down all your corn or something like that, like I could, I could ask for forgiveness, but I can't make it grow again. It's done. It's going to, it's done. You did it, killed it, um, The water of your baptism restores that. Um, It can do what you, you know, like, so, like, we can feel like we just can't, you know, like, you know, so, like, we can hear, well, I'm forgiven of this. That's great. But there's consequences. And there's things that I destroyed by my sin. I, I just, I mangled it. And this side of the grave, you know, like, I might have to live with those consequences. But baptism... Is is a restoring that that like and we have to live by faith on this right that this is it's clean and 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 new yeah restored again whatever old Adam is and destroyed and all our sinful selves employed according to our nature so everything everything that we have done see. So, so the hope would be, and this is where this this use of baptism comes in, is that we use our baptism to help us be able to live um, with a with a clean conscience, even though my sins still like they still exist, and they still they still smart, they still hurt because they have consequences, and so I have to live with them. Or you know, if I have to live with well, there's all kinds of consequences for sin because of because of what I've done. Now I'm living with it. Um, How can I? How can (laughs) the question of how do you sleep at night? How do you live with that? um, Is is to say I've been baptized into Christ? You know, in the other hymn, the other wonderful hymn that you know we more recently got into English, God's own child, I gladly say it. You know, to be able to sing sin, disturb my soul no longer. <laughs> or Satan, hear this proclamation, I am baptized into Christ. You know, stop it. <laughs> I, I, on the one hand, on the one hand, I deal with sin by totally embracing it and not being afraid, like Luther says, don't be afraid to be a, a sinner because Jesus saves sinners, only sinners, right? So I have to be ready to confess, ready to have to be apologized at a, you know, easy Right, and I can do that because I'm confident in Christ. Right, I don't have to be right; I can be wrong, and because of the forgiveness of sins. And when I, you know, when I acknowledge it, but on the other hand, when Satan wants, so <laughs> it's, it's not always tell, hard, easy to tell the difference. When my neighbor comes to me and says you hurt me, I need to be ready to confess. But when Satan comes after the fact, and wants to rip me, rip me down and, and remind me of my sins, then I have to tell him to shut up. <laughs> and I tell him to go where he belongs. Um, and baptism. you know, I, I love the picture, too. The, the picture there is you take him, or you, you, you just douse him with water, <laughs> as you drown him. It's to say, because of baptism... You have nothing to say to me. Because your lungs are fully filled with water. (laughs) You have to kill. right. Um, So that gets into then. um, the, the, The ongoing thing. So four, let's read that. In baptism we now put on Christ. Our shame is fully covered. With all that he once sacrificed. And freely for us suffering. For here the flood of his own blood. Now makes us holy, right, and good before our heavenly Father. So that's such biblical language. You know, all of us who are baptized into Christ have put on Christ, the apostle writes, right? We put on Christ like a robe. Um, uh, the, the Old Testament already talks about the robe of righteousness, um, like adorned by the, as a, as a bride adorned for her wedding, right? Um, so what's covered up? Shame. Shame is fully covered. What are we covered with? All that he once sacrificed and freely for us suffered. So, so what do we put on? We put on the death and the dying of Christ over that. Um, this makes me think of, of Johann Gerhard. Different Gerhard? No T at the end. Johann Gerhardt, um, Lutheran theologian. He has a wonderful set of devotions. I think it says medit on divine mercy. But he, he has these prayers in which he goes through like the commandments and he, like, so to this, this my sin or this like, transgression against the commandment, apply this merit of Christ. I, I just, um, to apply the, the sacrifice of Jesus to cover me, to clothe me when I contemplate my sin. Um, the, the baptism is just this cloak that goes over the top. Um, here, the flood of His own blood is another wonderful, wonderful uh, picture. Although kind of messy, if you think about it, the flood of blood—the um, flood of His own blood—makes us holy, right, and good before our heavenly Father, um, so that we stand before God. We stand innocent, righteous, holy. Um, I, I don't know. That's that's kind of a maybe. This is a immediate in between here, between what it does, what baptism does, and we're getting, we're getting here, we're getting how we use it, um, is to say, what are we going to do? Christ has died for us. Baptism put us in connection with Jesus. Baptism covers us. That actually does something to us. And so, first of five. Ready? O Christian, firmly hold this gift. And give God thanks forever. It gives the power to uplift in all that you endeavor. When nothing else revives your soul, your baptism stands and makes you whole, and then in death completes you. Uh, so, so we've got something to do now, right? Oh well, Christian, firmly hold this gift. Okay? You've been given the gift in holy baptism. Um, what do you do? You put it in a box and you forget about it for the rest of your life. no. You put, it, you put it, you know, next to your keys <laughs> so that you pick them up or on your, your nightstand or something like that. You hold on to the gift. Um, you don't put it in a case somewhere so you don't touch it. It doesn't get dust on it. This thing has to get used, right? This is, this is not meant as a showpiece, your baptism. It's meant as a daily tool. It's the thing, it's, it's thing that you keep, you know, on your, on your hip or ready at the, at the ready um, Christian, hold this gift, give it now, thanks forever. It gives the power to uplift in all that you endeavor. I kind of hinted at that before it 's like to 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 consider having baptism, my baptism like at the ready and it, it 's part of part of my everything that I endeavor. I go and say. I, you know, my, my success does not lie or my fulfillment or whatever my, yeah, um, in my performance. Ultimately, this is my, this is my security that I stand right before God. It gives me to stand up straight, you know, lift my head up, uh, not be hunched down, oh, woe is me. I suck at everything and I'm terrible. Um, but to say no, because I'm a <laughs> child of God, baptized into him, forgiven, holy in his eyes, um, that gives the power to uplift. Um, when nothing else revives your soul, because I don't know if that's ever, when nothing else, it seems like nothing else is going to work. Um, nothing, nothing else revives your soul. Your soul is like dead on the, It's dead on the table. You know? Um, just so disillusioned, they're so um despairing. Eventually, nothing if nothing else is going to work, you know, grab the paddles and and uh, your baptism stands. So, and I love this this present tense in here the present tense, your baptism stands now. Um, and there's not stood, it stands for you today. When nothing else revives your soul, your baptism stands makes you whole, um, can do as much as Jesus can when Jesus can say to the paralyzed man, get up and walk. Yeah? Your baptism can stand and say, get up. Um, you know, the, the things that would, would uh, put us down, depress us, uh, put us into, uh, into a frame of mind where we're tempted to believe the devil. Um, and it, Regarding our worth, or our um, value, um, <laughs> baptism comes and says, "No, uh, makes you whole, and then in death completes you." Um, what we'd, we'd want to distinguish here um, that baptism, when uh, you, you say in death completes you, that baptism completes you in death. Um, baptism is complete. Is is full. Um, There's sometimes language in the church, we've talked about this sometimes, about how confirmation over over centuries kind of shifted into an idea that confirmation or something else, like completed baptism. Like, baptism wasn't really complete until you you did something. Like, you made your commitment, then baptism. No, baptism is complete by itself. But there is a sense in which really it doesn't, in a sense, isn't complete until you die. Because... It's bringing to fulfillment what happened in baptism. So what happens in baptism? You are baptized into the death of Christ. You put on Christ. What do you you put on of Christ? His death. So what is the the consequence of sin? Or what is the punishment for sin? It's death, right? But you who have been baptized into Christ, who died for sin, so that the dying for sin bit has been done. Um, In death... What happens then? You don't have to, in your death does not die for sin. It can't, that's already been done. What does your death do? In what sense does it complete you? What it completes is the final, the final death of the sinful flesh. When your sinful flesh is finally put into the grave, it will stay there. That's kind of one nice thing about having a grave. And having it in the dirt. It can, it can stay down there. <laughs> you on the other hand. Even in your body. That Jesus will raise. When he raises you uh, in, in the flesh. You will. This is one of the reasons why. I think you will ra- be raised. Imperishable. Because the sinful flesh. The sinful nature will. That will stay in your grave. Um. But the, the, the reality is that you have this reality now. Um, it'll, it kind of comes to its fulfillment when, when finally the sinful nature is, when, the way the Bible describes that, when the final enemy is put under his feet. And that final enemy is death. And there is no more death. So, last one. Ready? So use it well. You are made new. In Christ, the new creation. As faithful Christians live and do within your own vocation, until that day when you possess his glorious robe of righteousness bestowed on you forever. You know, so it's a great um, parting shot, you know, an encouragement. Use it. Here you have it. Use it. I always, at, at confirmation, when we do examination before confirmation, um, the question, and that's, I do it for every part of the catechism, um, the, the question is, how do you use this? What's the use of the Ten Commandments? What's the use of the Lord's Prayer? And there's always usually an obvious answer, like pray it, <laughs> confess it, right? Um, with baptism, there's an obvious answer. How do you use baptism? You get baptized, first of all. But that's, that can't be where it ends, right? The use of baptism is an everyday thing. Use it well. I, again, I think of this like the tool that's used well, like the worn, the worn handle on a, just a tool that's been used and used and used. Um, use it well. Um, you are made new, or in Christ, a new creation. And so you live with that reality. Um, as faithful Christians, live and do within your own vocation. Uh, so, where do we take place? Where do we use? Um, The baptism that we have, where do we go? Um, We'll sometimes talk about the baptismal life in relation to our vocational life, right? Uh, You take your baptism, your identity in Christ, and then you step in, well, all you're doing is stepping out of bed, (laughs) and then you're in vocation, right? The moment you get up, now you've got got people around you with needs. (laughs) God, in his, his ordering of our world and our society, families, relationships with other people, right? God's put us in here with, with all these other people who have needs, and He's ordered it so that none of us are ordered to live alone, like to, have, to be totally self sufficient, right? We, we're born that way, right? Born with, with a bundle of needs, and we die as a bundle of needs. And in the middle, we, we get a little stupid and think that we're kind of on our own. <laughs> but the reality is that all the time. And then we're, the, the, the wonderful thing about God's ordering is that you know, when we're a bundle of needs at the beginning and we're a bundle of needs at the end, generally, right in the middle, that's where we take care of the other people that are bundles <laughs> of needs. Right? And that's why when we're changing diapers you know, or other things. And, and every other thing. So there's my vocation. It's, it's the, the, the neighbor that I'm given to need. Who, who needs me. Within your own vocation. Um, that's another thing. Uh, the the, the doctrine of vocation for the Christian. Um, two aspects of it. One is that it's always flavored by baptism. So... So your neighbor has needs. Can you fulfill all the needs of your neighbor? No. Can you do everything that you're responsible for doing, that is your duty? Um, Will you do all those things perfectly? No, you never will. What a delightful thing to go into vocation wearing your baptismal robe, right? Because you go into it knowing that, well, that you're going to sin because you're a sinner. You're like, yeah, tell me another story. <laughs> like I know this, right? I go into it knowing that I'm not planning to fail, but just I I go in there. My 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 confidence in knowing that I'm do, I'm being a good parent is not doing everything right. My confidence in being a good parent is knowing that I've been baptized into Christ, and therefore I I live with that. So that's one thing. And then the other thing is just that there's a limit to vocation. The limit to vocation is that I'm not responsible for everyone's needs all the time. I'm not, I don't have to be Superman or Supermom. I mean, I'm not going to be Supermom ever. <laughs> so, um, you know what I mean? Like, you don't have to. Um, I mean, even if it's only to say I don't have to feed everyone's children or raise everyone's children. I don't have to I don't have to meet everyone's needs. There are limits on my vocation. Right? And so that that's, so there's a sort of a freeing thing too. Free first in the forgiveness of sins. That's where the Christian lives. But also free in the limits of where my vocation is. And generally that rule of thumb is dealing with the neighbors that are closest to me. Right? You know, for many of us, the closest neighbor is my spouse. I don't have to take care of any other woman's needs. <laughs> In, at least as a, as a wife, right? That's That gives all my attention to one. Um, I don't have to be everyone's parent. I don't have to fret about how other people are raising their children. I might be tempted to do that. And, I, and then, but because I'm baptized into Christ, too, I don't have to really fret about how my own children are being raised because I'm going to trust... I'm, I'm, I'm attending to it with all the diligence that I can, right? But I'm, I'm, there's, there's, a, there's, there's a, a boundary to vocation. So when keeping that in, in, in mind allows me to do it with, with freedom and joy. Yeah? Uh, as faithful Christians, live and do within your own vocation. Within it. Now without, don't, we don't go outside of our vocation. We don't go looking for other people's problems. That are, you know, that are not my responsibility, which is why it's a, it's a hard thing, you know, when you know stuff that's going on outside, in, in well, other well, parts of the world or something like that, and oh, it's going really bad over here. Sometimes that's tempting us to, it's trying to like mentally suck us out of our vocation and, and get us worried about everyone else. Um, within your own vocation, until that day when you possess his glorious robe of righteousness bestowed on you forever. And, and so that's what we'll do. We, we take up these callings until we are done. <laughs> and, and then, and then when you possess, you know, the, this robe of righteousness, then that's what's going to matter. You know? No one, you're not, if, as a Christian baptized child of God, stand before God on the last day, And he's like, you know, God's coming at you for all the stuff that you didn't get done. He's just saying, what a nice robe that is. You look like Jesus. <laughs> I think we're going to hang out for eternity. Um, what, what, what a delight. Um, I hope that that's... I, I, it's fun to discover a new hymn. I mean, for mo- the, well, all of us, this would be relatively a new hymn, even if, if we sing it, we'll sing it this Sunday, um, because the second, lest epistle is Romans 6, I believe. I'm guessing we sing it a couple of times during the year, typically. Um, But, you know, prior to 2004, well, 2007 for us when the supplement was was published, it didn't exist for us. And now it does. (laughs) So wouldn't it be a wonderful thing so we get, you know, maybe we're first generation with it in English speakers, right? It's been around several hundred years. Um, you know, we get to now share something with those you know, German Lutherans who got to sing it. Um, we now get to share that with them. But then, going forward, you know, like, wouldn't that be great if, you know, I don't know, three generations, four generations down, you know, it's like this is one of the favorites, you know, and this is a, that's a staple. It'd be great, wouldn't it? If this is like the, everyone knows this one and they sing it every day. Oh, uh, one thing just to, to note, so already, uh, Paul Gerhardt's hymns tend to be like this. Um, although, actually, this one's more, because this is more objective, like it's teaching something. A lot of Paul Gerhardt's hymns, Rejoice My Heart, Be Glad, and Sing. It's kind of introspective. Oh, Lord, how shall I meet you? Um, it's kind of, yeah, it's kind of like thoughtful. Um, uh, they were written... Not for corporate singing, actually. Uh, they were written for dev- private devotional life, And so that makes sense then, that he would write them that way. Um, even in, in, by the time he's writing them 1640s, 16'50s, uh, 1660s he,
1: uh, even at that
0: time so that's several, you know, decades after the, through the Reformation. They're still not really writing hymns to put in hymnals to put in churches. They didn't have pews, even I don't think, at this point yet, right? So the, the the source of these hymns came from pastors writing them for people to have sing at home. They would sometimes sing at church or things like that, but it wasn't like part of the service in the same way. Uh, so just maybe we keep that in mind that that stuff uh, where where they really live. Um, was well, kind of devotionally, we should we should as much as possible try to use them that way if we can. Well, our friends have arrived. Uh, tonight we're going to sing. We're going to sing using a recording, and we're going to have some extra voices with us. So it's a recording, uh, organ recording with the congregation singing, but uh, sort of the same stanzas. That's kind of a fun little accompaniment. Um, you might just try, to, if you can, as you're singing, you pay attention, listen to what the organ's doing, um, and might be doing things in conjunction with the text, if you can, if you can pay attention to that. All right? we close the prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, Almighty Son of God, we beseech you, send your Holy Spirit into our hearts through your holy word, that he may rule and govern us according to your will, comfort us in every temptation and misfortune, and defend us by your truth against every error, so that we may continue steadfast in the faith, increase in love and good works, and firmly trusting in your grace, which you purchased for us by your death, obtain eternal salvation. For you reign with the Father and the Holy Spirit, one true God, now and forever.